Morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to uh, Revelation chapter 4? It's page 1236 in the Bibles in the Pews. Uh, last Sunday, Roy very helpfully introduced us to this, the last and challenging, and let's be honest, quite confusing book of the Bible. And in chapter 1, we were confronted by an opening vision of Jesus that led to a very particular reaction. I don't know if you remember how John responded whenever he saw Jesus with eyes of blazing fire and a face like the shining sun, etc. Do you remember how he reacted? He simply and immediately fell at his feet in awe and worship. And the question I want to ask right at the start this morning is this. How do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus this morning? And how do you react? And we'll come back to that later. Then last Sunday night, we looked at Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Those seven letters to the seven churches, seven sharp pointed messages from Jesus that I suggested marks out the seven characteristics of a true and living church. And we only looked at two of those, love and wholehearted commitment. And we thought about this tragic situation where some Christians like those in Ephesus and Laodicea can lose their first love and become lukewarm and half and how we as Christians can shut this amazing Jesus out of our lives. How that verse in Revelation 3 that is so often uh, spoken to not yet Christians is actually a verse that's directed to us who are Christians. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We can shut Jesus out of our lives as Christians. So another question this morning. Do you love Jesus? simple question or have you lost your first love and is your commitment to Jesus wholehearted today the story of revelation or the vision of revelation in a sense really takes off because John finds himself in heaven he's in the throne room of heaven and what he sees and observes from there and what he sees and observes when he's there makes up the rest of this interesting, as I say, perplexing and unique book. But as we get into this, and specifically this morning I'm going to try, emphasis on try, look at Revelation chapters 4 and 5. But I'd like to start with a quote because anybody that knows me knows that I love quotes. Uh, and this is one I came across during the week. It's attributed to C.S. Lewis. A human being in the presence of God is going to feel one of two ways. Either you feel like a small, dirty object, or you lose thought of yourself altogether. Lewis then went on to say, the latter is by far preferable. And during these next 15, 20 minutes or so, that's my prayer. That as we continue to consider God, as we have been doing, our creator, the majestic, the holy one, and as we continue to reflect on Jesus, as we already have been doing, the lion and the lamb, it is my hope that our minds 
and their concept and understanding of God will just stretch that little bit further. That our appreciation of the Almighty will intensify to a greater degree as a result of being here today. That somehow we will lose thought of ourselves. That somehow we will be able to lay those things down that are now, right now, occupying our thoughts. And just surrender them to God and to Jesus. And just lose all thought of ourselves. And maybe, maybe this is a big ask, but that we would discover that we are lost in wonder, love and praise. Now, we are about to read uh, some fascinating words, sentences and paragraphs from the book of Revelation, which means, because of the very nature of this book, that we're going to encounter ideas and images that will send our heads spinning. But at the heart of it all, what I want to issue is a call, an invitation to worship. Because you see, as John gets a glimpse or a vision of heaven, he discovers that it's a very active place. And the central activity is worship. Worship is the heartbeat of heaven. And therefore he encounters creatures and elders and angels and multitudes of people from every nation, tribe, language engaged in worship. And the right response the appropriate response, the only response when you are truly confronted by the sheer beauty, majesty and otherness of God is to worship. And so in some ways, and this is the the key thing I'd love us to take away, in some ways what John sees in heaven is what ought to be going on here, right now. We are most fully who God created us to be when we are involved in authentic worship. It's what we've been made for. It's why the catechism starts, and I know some of you are familiar with this, that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let's join John in Revelation chapter 4 as he gets taken into God's throne room. So as we often do at Windsor, let's stand together for the public reading of God's word. I'm going to take my time as I read this. I'm often accused of reading far too fast. Uh, So I'm going to try to slow down. Okay, so let's read together. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once... I was in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold in their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. 
In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Grab a seat. Now, clearly, this is, a, this is not a vision of the ultimate heaven. The final dwelling place of God's people. That comes much later on in chapters 21, 22, where we encounter the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. This in chapter 4 is, if you like, heaven as it is at the moment its present reality and as John is summoned here he's immediately confronted with God and God's appearance is mind boggling Jasper and Carnelian and he's seated on a throne which has around it a rainbow looking like an emerald 24 elders on 24 thrones and four different six-winged creatures covered with eyes. And stretching out before this throne is a sea of glass. And this is by no means a placid place because lightning is flashing, thunder is crashing, fires are burning. Can you imagine seeing that in like kind of full technicolor 3D high definition. Now I know we could and many have attempted to explain and suggest what so much of this rich language and colourful imagery relates to. So some think the, the rainbow for example reflects God's mercy. And the 24 elders, well they represent a combination of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And it's not that I think they don't, or that they might not, or that it's not worth considering what some of them do represent. But for me, it's the reaction of the four creatures and of the 24 elders to this enthroned God in heaven that I find intriguing. It's what they're doing in the presence of God that I just want to draw attention to and focus on this morning. And let's start with the four creatures. Look at this with me. Because it says that right around the clock, 24-7, day and night, they engage in ceaseless worship. They never let up. 
they constantly give, according to verse 9, glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne. They appear totally lost in wonder, love and praise. And it's one of, if not the, core characteristics of God that inspires and constantly fuels their worship. What is it? It's God's blazing holiness. Holy. Holy. Holy is the Lord. It's echoes of Isaiah 6, where the Old Testament prophet gets a glimpse way back then of the enthroned, highly exalted Lord. And his reaction, his response is exactly the same. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Triple repetition. Why is this the only attribute of God that appears to receive this treatment? Why this elevation? Is it because, as many believe, that the holiness of God encompasses all his other attributes? Or as one Christian writer has said in a book called The Holiness of God, any attempt to understand God apart from his holiness is idolatry. See, God is holy. Totally alone in his perfection. No one Nothing else is compared with him. No rivals, no competition. God is uniquely different other than apart from Hannah in the Old Testament realized this when she prayed. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. Or as Moses and Miriam sang after the Red Sea incident and miracle, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, work in wonders. And the clear implication is no one is. No one is like you, God. No one, never has been, never will be. And whenever or as we reflect, or whenever we come to that place of recognizing the blazing holiness of God, we will pray like Hannah. We will sing like Moses and Miriam. We will worship like the four creatures. But it's not just God's holiness they affirm. It's also his power. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And time and time again, whenever God revealed himself to humanity, he confirmed this aspect of his character. And so, for example, way back, Genesis 17, whenever God needed Abraham to realize, listen, this is who you're dealing with here. Here's what we read. And whenever Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai. God of the impossible. God of limitless ability. God who is more than able. God of infinite power. And so the God these creatures worship, the God that we are invited to worship is holy. He's almighty, but he's also eternal. Who was and who is and who is to come. No beginning as we understand it. No end. He's outside of time. From everlasting to everlasting. You're God, said the psalmist. The Bible, the Bible never tries to prove God's existence. Or where he came from. It merely assumes he's always there and always has been there. In the beginning, God. Uncreated. Unoriginated. There is such a word owes his existence to no one outside of himself, self-existent. And therefore he has no end. God is too everlasting. 
That also means he's able to give and has given this incredible gift of eternal life to others. See, the future's in his hands. We are in his hands. And therefore, the only appropriate response is worship. And as these four creatures worship, it says the elders join in. Because as the four creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the holy, almighty, eternal God, the 24 elders appear to keel off their thrones. And they find themselves lying prostrate, lying face down in worship before God, according to verse 10. And one of the things that I'm struck by in God's word regarding appropriate worship, and I use that word intentionally, And I know this takes some of us well outside of our comfort zones. But the thing that I am struck with time and time again as I engage with God's word is this physical expression of worship. That worship is not just affirming in prayer and in word and in song who God is. But at times it may involve And I realize this may appear to some of a relatively radical reaction. But at times it does involve a literal bowing down. A dramatic change in your posture that expresses reverence and respect and admiration. And throughout the Old Testament, you find it time and time again. Genesis 24, Abraham's servant bows down and worships. Exodus 12, when the Israelites heard about the Passover sacrifice, it says, then the people bowed down. Literal, physical expression and worshipped. Exodus 34, we read, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship of God. Nehemiah 8, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed and they worshipped the Lord, it says, with their faces pressed to the ground. Psalm 95, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And then whenever you come into the New Testament, that that, that term, that Greek term that is often translated worship, literally means to prostrate oneself before another as an act of reverence. Sixty times it comes out. You see, as John catches a glimpse of this dynamic throne room, he discovers that the worship of heaven is profoundly reverential. And it ought to be like that here too. Because you see, heaven takes the lead and surely we must follow. That whenever God is recognized, like truly recognized for who he is, then we, like these elders, yes, should worship him in what we say and in what we sing, but is there not a place for Is there not a need to express that physically as we kneel, as we bow down, 
and as we lie prostrate before a holy, almighty, eternal God. When was the last time I knelt before God in worship? Like if I truly believed he is holy. But let's look at what these elders declare as they fall. Verse 11. You are worthy, God. You're worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You see, what it says here is God deserves worship. He is uniquely worthy to be honored in this way. Someone has described or defined worship as an exercise of the human spirit that is directed primarily to God. It is an enterprise undertaken not simply to satisfy our need or to make us feel better, or to minister to our aesthetic taste or social well-being, but to express the worthiness of God himself. You see, the elders knew that. The elders did that, and it's our calling. Because as human beings, we have been created with the capacity to glorify God. We can, don't fully get this, but we can understand God or have an understanding of God, an understanding of God that then should lead us to worship. It's what we've been made for. But notice why God deserves a worship. You see, there is a reason given. There is a because. The elders declare, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things. You know, we worship God because he is the creator of life. He is the source. Apart from God's creativity and ingenuity, nothing, none of us would be here at all. But increasingly, that requires courage to affirm that. It real courage to believe that today. We live in a world that wants to write God out of the creative process. And maybe that's why we no longer worship as a society as we once did, because we actually no longer believe in a creator God. But notice that the elders also confirm that it's by God's will all things were created. You see, God wasn't forced to create. God didn't have to create. God didn't lack something that creation might provide for him. But even so, God freely chose to create. And so these elders express praise to this life-giving, creative God. And so should we. And this scene, this vision in Revelation 4, yes, it sends our heads spinning. But what we must not miss is the importance and the reminder that what it actually does bring to us is this. God is great. And so along with the four creatures and the 24 elders, we're we're invited to join heaven in worshipping. And my prayer this morning is, is that just maybe, maybe in however we feel it is appropriate, we would bow down. But let me move on very quickly to finish. Because you see, as this vision develops, someone else is in the frame of reference. Someone else is standing at the center of this throne. It's in chapter 5. I'm not going to take time to read it. Let me just give it to you like this. 
John Luke's God's got a scroll in his right hand. But it's sealed, and, and so there's a crisis. Who can open it, asks a mighty angel, or rather, who's worthy to open it? Because this is clearly a vitally important document, whatever this document happens to be. And it turns out that no one can open it. And therefore, John is traumatized with despair, and he breaks down, and he cries, and he weeps. He says, is that it? And then an elder steps forward. And the elder speaks words of hope and he invites John to look towards the Lion of Judah, to the root of David. Because he says he's triumphed and he's actually able to open the scroll. And here we have this direct reference to the Messiah. This is clearly Jesus. But then comes one of the incredibly decisive moments in Scripture because as John looks towards the Lion, he sees a lamb. The lion is a lamb. It's one of the central paradoxes of the Christian faith. Because you see, these two things seem so radically different. Lion is a symbol of power and royalty. Lamb provides an image of weakness and vulnerability. And yet here and forever, they are fused together completely. And as John sees the lamb, he watches as he takes the scroll out of God's right hand. And then the four creatures and the 24 elders are on their faces again. Prostrate. But this time, they're prostrate before the lamb, who now shares the worship of the one and only God. This lamb deserves our praise. And again, there is a reason for that revealed in a song in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, this is a sacrificial lamb whose blood, like that of the Passover lamb of Exodus 12, delivers, saves, rescues, redeems people. And here we have in Revelation 5 this central reminder or this reminder of the centrality of the cross of Christ. And so no wonder the angels, and it says thousands of them at this point, just break into song and they say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You see, because of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, broken body, shed blood, there is hope. God's purposes cannot be hijacked. And therefore, what does heaven do? Heaven sings sings, worships. The victory won by the lion is accomplished by the lamb and in no other way. And how should we respond this morning? Well, again, I encourage us to take our cue from John's vision of heaven because we join the creatures, we join the uh, elders, we join the angels. In fact, to quote verse 13 of chapter 5, we join every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and in the sea. That includes us. And we say this. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory and honor and power forever and ever. And you see as we close this morning, I just want us to do exactly that. And I want us to use a song that has just grabbed the words from Revelation 4, 5 and 7 and has set them to music. 
And here they are. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Yes, God is worthy of our praise and worship. And unto the Lamb who shares the worship of the one and only God. Be praise and glory, wisdom and thanks be to our God forever and ever. And look with me at the last verse of chapter 5. Verse 14. Because you see, as these words are sung, the creatures say, Amen. And the elders, for the third time, are flat out before God in worship. And so I'm going to invite us to stand to sing a song. But if this morning you would like to kneel as an expression of your worship to the holy, almighty, eternal creator God and the Lamb, then that is your choice. I invite you to stand or kneel and praise this amazing God.